Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. I want to thank you for joining me. I am so glad to share this time with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people, concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I want to encourage you to subscribe to always get the next podcast. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. Sir Alexander Mackenzie is a Canadian hero, an early fur trader and explorer. He accomplished a magnificent feat when he led an expedition across Canada from Fort Chippewa on Lake Athabasca to the Pacific Ocean. His incredible journey was completed in 1793, 11 years before Lewis and Clark began their famous expedition to the West. Mackenzie's earlier attempt in 1789, however, had been a major disappointment. His explorers had set out in an effort to find a water route to the Pacific. The valiant group followed a mighty river, now named the Mackenzie, with high hopes, paddling furiously amid great danger. Unfortunately, it didn't empty into the Pacific Ocean, but into the Arctic Ocean. In his diary, Mackenzie called it the River of Disappointment. Wow, what a name that is, the River of Disappointment. Perhaps you can relate, not with a failed expedition, but with some major disappointment you've experienced in life, a setback, a downturn, something that didn't turn out the way you wanted, and you could call it a river of disappointment in your life. Maybe you feel like you're on such a river right now, you're stuck. It's in those moments that a word like hope would be very welcome. But for some, hope feels like an impossibility. Now, hope is vital. It's vital to life, but it often feels so very elusive. And we wonder, why is this? Why is it so hard to get hope when we feel stuck? Well, hope has a close neighbor. They don't really get along, but they are close together. And that neighbor is called disappointment. We all know disappointment more than we would like. Plans that don't turn out, change that is unwelcome, and people that let you down, and so many other sources for disappointment. These encounters with disappointment come from living in a world touched by sin. The presence of sin and the sin nature means that even the very best of us who do our best to not disappoint others, disappoint others, we have limits. Each of us are bound to come up short and bring disappointment to others or be disappointed ourselves and struggle. If you experience severe enough disappointment or disappointment for long enough, hope begins to dissipate. And hope must be built on what can be counted upon. Disappointment, now that comes from when trust is broken. You can no longer count on a person or a thing or an idea. The end result is that hope in our culture today has become a wish or a desire rather than a certainty. We say things like, I hope my team wins. I hope the weather will be good. I hope he or she keeps her promise this time. It's a wish instead of something you are really counting on. There's a story about a man who was sentenced to death, and he obtained a reprieve by assuring the king that he could teach his majesty's horse to fly within the year, on the condition that if he didn't succeed, he, might be, he would be put to death at the end of the year. 
And the man explained later, well, within a year the king may die, or I may die, or the horse may die, or furthermore, in a year, who knows, maybe the horse will learn to fly. Lots of rhyming there. And it's all wishes, right? But biblical hope is more than a wish. Biblical hope is certainty, and it's specific. It's certainty built in the promises of God, and we will see today that it's even more than that. Now, we're going to go to the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah, he's a Jewish prophet tasked by God to reinvigorate the Israelites with real hope. They were coming to grips with their own failures, their own unfaithfulness, their own judgment that they've suffered, and now they are now conquered people. Their homeland has been decimated by the Assyrians, and now the Babylonians are looming near, and and the Israelites are no longer free, and they certainly don't feel very blessed. They don't feel a lot of hope, and they need real hope again. Real hope is dependable. It is just, and it is untouched by sin. And that's the part we often miss when we talk about hope in our culture today. Real hope is untouched by sin. Hope is our theme for the second week of Advent and the way that we prepare for Christ. And we need hope, and you're going to see here in a moment. Listen to the words of Isaiah as I read them. He's going to speak of heaven. He's going to speak of peace. He's going to speak of uh, peace between natural enemies, like a wolf and a lamb, or, uh, or dangers being put aside, like a child handling a viper. But Isaiah tells us something more. Isaiah tells us that hope is a person. Hope is the Messiah, and we know him as Jesus. That's what I need you to hear above all else today. If you are feeling like you're living in a world without hope, the best solution is not to try to fix a problem. It's not to try to get out of the hole you're in. It's not to try to feel happy. The best solution is to realize that hope is a person and his name is Jesus, and he wants to be in your life and restore your life and transform your life. So, as I read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, listen for the description of the Messiah and think about how this describes Jesus. Beginning in verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain, for all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So our text today has two halves to it. The first half describes the Messiah. He's a shoot growing from a stump. 
The Spirit of the Lord rests on him. He'll bring justice to the wicked and to the oppressed. He will wear righteousness and faithfulness as garments around him. The second half describes an ideal future. It's heaven, right? Here, natural enemies now live in harmony. You have lambs and wolves together, children and vipers. There's no danger there. In the end, you get this picture that everyone that's in this new creation, this restored order, they all deeply know God. Everybody has a knowledge or filled with the knowledge of the Lord. But I want to point out this. Our hope of heaven can only exist if we put our trust in hope himself, Jesus the Messiah. I need you to hear this. Okay, because many put people put their hope in an idea, in something they want, and something that they want to get to. A lot of people say, I want heaven, my hope is in heaven, and that's not a bad thing to say, but to have hope in heaven, you got to start with Jesus. There are a lot of people in our world today that say, well, I'm putting my hope in true justice, I'm putting my hope in righteousness, I'm putting my hope in finding peace, but you can't put your hope in a thing. You need a person to bring these things about. You can't have heaven without Christ. You can't have justice without Christ. There's no righteousness without Christ. There's no peace without Christ. So, you can't have hope in a thing. It must be a person and it has to be Jesus. And that's what I want to get to. It's not hope in just any person. You and I need someone who is perfectly trustworthy, someone who can be our hope for eternity. And you cannot put eternal hope in an ordinary person. So Isaiah gives us a description of who we need to put our hope into. I want to take a few minutes and look at Isaiah's description, and then I want to call you to think about the character attributes of Jesus in the Gospels, and you'll see this man the Son of God, this one who is fully man, fully God, who is capable of being our hope. And he's where you can find hope if you're stuck. So let's start with Isaiah. And he talks about hope from a stump. Isaiah begins his description of the, of the Messiah, the one worthy of hope, by picturing not something mighty, but something that looks kind of dead, a stump. It might seem like a strange picture, but we need a little bit more information to kind of get this image of a stump and process it and start to really see the Messiah in it and why this is so good to see a shoot coming from a stump. In the previous chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah describes, he describes the Assyrian armies invading both both of the Jewish kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And he's describing how successful the Assyrians were. They were very successful with their invasion. They completely conquered that northern kingdom. Its capital was Samaria. And and, uh, then they captured everything in Judah except for its capital city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is all that's left. Everything else has been destroyed, leveled, conquered. The people's hauled away. It's a hopeless moment. And eventually we know the Babylonians come in and the kings of David's line fall. And Isaiah chapter 10 ends with a picture of God getting even, God going after the Assyrians. And it's a picture of God cutting down a forest. That's the Assyrian army. They've cut down the Israelites as a a forest, and now God is cutting them down. And we're left 
with a picture of a destroyed, a leveled forest. I want to read the very end of Isaiah chapter 10, and it reads like this. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, he'll lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. It's a scene of a destroyed forest of Assyria and Israel, because Israel's already been conquered, laid low. And that is where we come in with Isaiah 11.1. 1. It's the very next verse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Israel is given a picture of hope in the midst of desolation. There's still life in the stump. But this time, the life is different from the kings you had before, because Jesse is the father of King David. So when you hear the stump of Jesse, you're meant to think of the line of David, all the kings that had come from David. And David, his family reigned as kings over Israel, and and they had a lot of great moments in their ruling of Israel, but they also failed miserably. Time after time, as you read about the kings of Israel, you'll find they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They strayed from him. They split the kingdom in half. They were more concerned about protecting their own personal power of getting the things they wanted. They followed, ended up following most of the time, false gods. David's line faltered in what it was supposed to do. They've been proven unworthy of putting any more hope in. So why would any other king be different? And that's why Isaiah does something unusual. Because he doesn't say, from the stump of David, a shoot will spring up. He says, a shoot's going to spring up from the stump of Jesse. See, David and his family were kings. They lived in Jerusalem. Jesse was never actually a king. He was King David's father, but he wasn't a king himself and he lived in Bethlehem. I don't think it's too hard for us to make the connection here with the Christmas season upon us, thinking of Jesus, born in Bethlehem. A new one from the line of David, a new king, a Messiah. We know Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but it's hearkening back, but this one's different. He's worthy of hope. He's not like the other ones from the line of David. Isaiah is essentially saying, since it's from the stump of Jesse, we're starting over. There's going to be a new king, but we're not going back uh, to David. We're going back to the root, back to Bethlehem. Because Jerusalem was about power and prestige, and Bethlehem was about humble beginnings. And the new king will be different. And so he starts to describe that new king in Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. He will be thoroughly empowered by the father, being full of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. He's filled with what is needed to bring hope. Interestingly enough, when we further read from the prophets, we'll find, yes, the Spirit of the Lord rests upon the Messiah, and that empowers him to be the Messiah that we need. We also read that the Spirit will rest on God's people, and the Spirit will empower us to be able to be faithful to God, because we've always struggled and failed. It's in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, it reads like this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Now, we know ultimately that salvation comes through Christ, but the obedience that we need to do after we have salvation, that's brought to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be Spirit-filled ourselves, and we need a Savior who is Spirit-filled, and yes, Jesus is. Isaiah mentions twice that the Messiah will be filled with the Spirit or with the fear of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting phrase, one that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Fear of the Lord, kind of like scared of God? That sounds awful. How is it, and that does raise the question, how is it the Messiah, Jesus, who is God, how is it that he can be afraid of God? And that's not really what the fear of the Lord means. It's something a little different. And I recently encountered a really great description of how to understand that phrase, fear of the Lord. It goes like this. It's a person. A person who fears the Lord is chiefly concerned about obeying, pleasing, and glorifying God. I love that. A person who is chiefly concerned. That's number one. And the chief concern is that they're concerned about obeying, pleasing, and glorifying God. That is what the fear of the Lord is. David and all the other kings, they struggled with temptation to preserve and expand their power. They, they chiefly wanted to make sure they stayed king. And they often served themselves first. They tried to operate with the fear of the Lord, but they often split that fear of the Lord with desire for self. You can't put your hope in a person who's more concerned about themselves than obeying, pleasing, and glorifying God. Now, put all this together, that he's full of the Spirit and that he fears the Lord. This is why the Messiah can judge justly and righteously, because he judges according to the Father's desire, not out of any ambition of his own. It's a powerful description that Isaiah gives us of the Messiah, one who can have hope placed in eternally. But I want to add to that description what we read about Jesus in the Gospels. And I want to share a little bit about Jesus from the Gospels. Um, One, so we can get a greater picture of the description of the Messiah. But two, because not only do we need to understand the one who is hope himself and why he can be hope himself, but also... There's something to be said about, and as Christians, we say that we need to become Christ-like. And if we're going to become Christ-like, then we need to imitate the character of Christ. And yeah, that means that we are going to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to seek to wear righteousness and faithfulness as garments close to our skin. It's going to be our identity. We're going to seek... uh, to have fear of the Lord first and foremost in our lives, instead of ambition and selfish thoughts first and foremost in our lives. So, Isaiah gives us a description of the Messiah, and we know that Messiah is Jesus. So, let's look at the Gospels for a moment. And and I'm actually more not going to go directly to Gospel texts, as we're going to talk about the character of Jesus in the Gospels. I, I, I just think we need to see that. Because so many people say, let's be Christ-like, and kind of what our culture means when they say be Christ-like, they say, let's be nice. But being Christ-like and the character of Christ is far more than that. 
He is the apex of the kind of men and women that we are to become. And it is because of who he is as fully man and fully God that we can put our hope in him. So here's just a couple of quick qualities that I see in Jesus that we need to understand about who he is. First, he is completely and utterly and totally dependable. What do I mean by this? I talked earlier about hope uh, needs to be built on trust, right? Hope needs to be built on dependability. And Jesus is such a savior as that. He is completely dependable. Go through all of the gospels. Every single claim that Jesus speaks, he makes good on. Every promise, everything he says that he will do, he does. He never comes up short. He never misses the mark. He never uh, says, oh, well, we were going to do that, but we ran out of time. He, he, he does everything he says. He is totally and completely dependable in every single way. He's worthy of putting our hope into. Secondly, Jesus is present. That might be a strange word for you to hear, but when I say present, I mean that whoever Jesus is with he gives his complete attention to them. There is no conversation in the Gospels where a person's talking to Jesus and Jesus says, wait, wait a minute, I, I, was, I was actually distracted and could you repeat yourself? He's completely present with every single person. Every time he's with a person, they are the most important person in the room. And there's more than a few times in the Gospels where Jesus stops everything for a person to spend time with them who is deemed worthless by everybody else. We would be, do well to be more like that. Jesus, and we talked about it before, but I want to highlight it again. Jesus shows fear of God. Not that he's scared. That's not it. Jesus delights in doing the will of the Father. He delights in bringing glory to the Father. He delights in obeying the Father. We need to see that. We need to emulate that. Jesus is also, a fourth thing I would mention, he's very direct when it comes to tough matters and meetings of people. That is to say this, Jesus never avoids an uncomfortable situation or an uncomfortable conversation. And there are plenty of opportunities for Jesus uh, to want to avoid an uncomfortable encounter um, there are all kinds of times when the crowd is angry with Jesus. There are all kinds of times when the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. There's a time when his family wants to come and collect him because, and they say he's lost his mind. And then Jesus uses that as a moment to teach about who his family really is, those who are following the Lord, his disciples. But Jesus, for all those awkward situations, he always faces them directly. Even when he stands before Pontius Pilate, the man with the earthly authority to command Jesus' execution, in that moment, Jesus faces directly into Pilate. And Jesus sees Pilate as the only person in the room. He's the most important person there. There's no fear. He's very present with him. He's concerned about Pilate. He's trying even to get Pilate to see the truth of who God is is. Never avoids things, but is direct. Now, there have been so many people who are very indirect. They avoid, they hide, they wait. We need to be more direct. A fifth thing about Jesus, he's very focused. 
He knows his purpose. He knows that he's heading for the cross for uh, to lay down his life for the redemption of everyone on the earth to be uh, to be the payment of our sins. And Luke chapter nine fifty one. I want to point out this verse. Luke nine fifty one. It reads, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So, it just said, okay, Jesus is thinking about the time where he's going to be taken up to heaven. He's going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where he gets put on the cross. This is Luke chapter 9. This is not even a third. Well, it's just over a third of the way through that particular gospel book. Not even halfway. And it's already telling us how Jesus is set out for the cross. He's focused. He knows what his mission is. He does not let up. But I'll add to it. Jesus is focused, but he's not a workaholic either. A workaholic gets their self-worth from their accomplishments at work. And they often sacrifice relationships to get more of that self-work, uh, self-worth from work. Jesus never sacrifices a relationship. Sixthly, um, Jesus, he never betrays anyone. He's very dependable. He never betrays anyone. He never abandons anyone. But he's also not blindly loyal either. He's for every one of the disciples. He's for everyone that comes up to him. He never throws anyone under the bus. He never tries to gain advantage. And he's not blindly loyal. He confronts and calls out other people in sin. Not to embarrass them, but because he's concerned about their good and their eternity. And the most important thing, at least of these qualities that I have listed, is that Jesus is redemptive. He is all about redeeming and blessing others. And that's why he goes to the cross. His mission is your eternal good. There are many other characteristics of Jesus in the Gospels and the whole Bible we could look at. We could could just spend years and years and years pulling up the different character qualities of Jesus. But the picture you need to get is that Jesus is different. He's not an ordinary man. Yes, he's fully man, but he is also fully God. Every regular person, every ordinary person is touched by sin and will eventually come up short. They won't be dependable. So we need our hope to be in someone of better stuff. And this is why we need Jesus, who is God incarnate. Jesus is hope. I want to close with this story. Because it gives a picture of how much God wants to walk alongside of us and bring us hope and walk with us in the tough things of life. The story is about the Barcelona Olympics of 1992. And it provided one of track and field's most incredible moments. Britain's Derek Redmond had dreamed all of his life of winning a gold medal in the 400-meter race. And his dream was in sight as the gun sounded in the semifinals at Barcelona. He was running the race of his life. He could see the finish line as he rounded the turn into the backstretch. Suddenly, he felt a sharp pain go up the back of his leg. He fell face first onto the track with a torn right hamstring. Sports Illustrated recorded the dramatic events like this. 
As the medical attendants were approaching, Redmond fought to his feet. It was animal instinct, he would say later. He set out hopping in a crazed attempt to finish the race. When he reached the stretch, a large man in a t-shirt came out of the stands, hurling, hurled aside a security guard, and ran to Redmond, embracing him. It was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. You don't have to do this, he told his weeping son. Yes, I do, said Derek. Well then, said Jim, we're going to finish this together. And they did. Fighting off security men, the son's head sometimes buried in his father's shoulder, they stayed in Derek's lane all the way to the end as the crowd gaped. And then the crowd rose to their feet, and then the crowd howled, and the crowd wept. Derek didn't walk away with a gold medal. But he walked away with an incredible memory of a father who, when he saw his son in pain, left his seat in the stands to help him finish the race. And that is what God does for us. When we are experiencing pain, when we are struggling to finish the race, when we are hopeless, we can be confident that we have a loving father who won't let us do it alone. He left his place in heaven to come alongside us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. I am with you always, says Jesus, to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. We all need hope to make it through life. It's essential. And I don't know what you're going through right now, but perhaps you feel like a stump. Or maybe that river of disappointment. I know life is hard. You need hope. You need life, and you need to let Jesus into your life in a new and fresh way. Will you trust him as your hope, as hope itself? Let us pray. Lord, I pray right now for those who are listening, that you would fill them with Jesus, who is hope himself. Show us hope of the new life, of the promise of heaven, that life does not have to be a journey from disappointment to disappointment, but a journey of hope with hope himself, King Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.